0: in Church, I just want to let you all know, you sound good singing, like y'all are a good choir today, all right? So give yourselves a hand for that. <laughs> I get the privilege of standing right back there before I come out and just listen to you sing, and man, that's awesome. Hey, my, uh, my last summer in college, I spent living in Virginia Beach, Virginia, about two blocks from the ocean with about 70 other college students doing campus ministry, or doing summer ministry with the campus ministry I was part of. It it was a rough summer. I mean, two blocks from the ocean, that's pretty tough. Um, but man, it was, it was an awesome summer, beautiful summer. And partway through that summer, Jen, who was then my girlfriend, now my wife, flew out to visit me. And she spent about a week out there. It was actually during that week that my prayers changed from God, should I marry this woman to God, when should I marry this woman? Uh, but during that week, I took her to all my favorite spots out there in Virginia Beach. We went to the beach, of course. We went down to the pier, walked along the boardwalk, visited some of my favorite little shops there. I took her to the ice cream place where I visited pretty much every day, at least once. Um, and, you know, took her to all these places. And, and then I took her to my favorite spot of all out there. Just north of of the beach area, there's this state park. And in that state park, it's Far less people, and it's just quiet, and it's beautiful, and it's serene. That's a place I'd go to study and pray, uh, to get my time alone with God, to do some of the mentoring I was doing with other guys. And it was there in that spot right beside this beautiful old lighthouse that was just, man, that was my favorite spot of the summer. And so when I got home a couple months later, now, honestly, that part was rough, going from the ocean to the oceans of corn. That's that's a little tough in Illinois. But when I got back to Illinois, my wife had this waiting for me. And she had taken a picture uh, of a Monet painting, and then she painted this for me. So she, she painted this. And she uh, tweaked the Monet painting and put the lighthouse and some other things into it. And, and I thought, well, when I see this painting, which my this is like one of my favorite gifts ever. But when I see this, I'm just immediately rocketed back to that place. I can feel the sunshine on my skin. I, I can feel the breeze blowing. I, I can hear the birds and the waves gently crashing and rolling in. I, I can smell the ocean. I can taste the salt in the air. I love it. But now, if we were to take this painting and, and just start picking out little pieces of it, Well, like if we just take the lighthouse and we just look at the lighthouse alone or we just look at one of the people in the boat or or the sail from one of the boats or just one of the clouds. Or if we just start focusing in on the colors and just a color on its own, just this one shade of green or this little bit of yellow or this one little piece of white and we just start focusing in on the details, we will actually miss what's going on. It's meant to be seen in its entirety. It's meant to draw an experience, to create something in us in its entirety. And if we get too far into the details, we miss it. The big picture is the point of the picture. It it all works together. That's kind of how it is in the book of Revelation. Apocalyptic writing is meant to give us a picture and it all goes together. And sometimes we get too far into the details. We'll actually miss the big picture of what God is trying to communicate to us. Because we got to keep in mind that the big picture is the point. So when we come to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and we're invited into the throne room of heaven, we got to keep the big picture in front of us. So let's enter into that throne room. This is John writing. It says, then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. We get this real-time, right-now moment in heaven. It said, instantly I was in the spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as jumpstones like jasper and ruby. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. The rainbow a reminder of God's faithfulness all the way back in Genesis. 24 thrones surrounded him, and 24 elders sat on them, and they were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. And this is a picture, a reminder of God's faithfulness and of his people, the 12 tribes of of Israel in in Israel and the 12 apostles. And so we have this combination of God's people, Old Testament, New Testament, all combined. This is representative of God's people throughout all time. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. And this is the sevenfold spirit of God. And in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes front and back. Now when we see the number four in apocalyptic writing, that's a symbol for the earth. The totality of the earth, all parts of the earth, the four corners of the earth. And so the first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. No, it's, it's like. It's not that it is that. He's trying to describe the indescribable scene in the throne room of heaven. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Oh, an eagle. That must represent the United States. No, no, it doesn't. That'd be weird. Don't read our culture back into that one. That's not what it is. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. The one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. When we walked through that open door in Revelation 4, And we step into the throne room of heaven, we are given this picture of majesty. We walk in and our senses are immediately overwhelmed. As we'll see moving on in chapter 5, that the smell of incense just rises up and it overwhelms our nostrils. We have to fall on our knees, shield ourselves from the dazzling light. That there's a noise just rumbling in heaven with the choirs of the angels and the elders. And all living beings. And and it just assaults us. We we are just overwhelmed with everything. That the whole sky shakes at its foundation with a sound of praise. And we see in the center of it that everything, all living beings, have their focus on a majestic God who sits on the throne. And all attention, all direction is given to him. And right there. And John is trying to describe the indescribable of this moment. The best he can do is use things familiar to us to try and just give us a glimpse of what's happening there. And so to try and paint this picture of this almighty God, he he has to dip his paintbrush into the jewels and into rubies and into rainbows. And he paints with strokes of lightning and thunder to help us understand this scene. And we could start to look at all the different pieces of what's going on there, all these different symbols. But if we do, we we might miss the the big picture that this overwhelming sense of God's majesty that just overwhelms us. And really, we're just meant to be speechless, to fall on our knees and just be struck with awestruck wonder. Wow. Wow. And so John continues on. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep. Bitterly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the twenty-four elders said to me, John, stop weeping. Look, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, he has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. We we see in this moment John is just overcome by grief. Because here's the one sitting on the throne, and there's this scroll in his hand, and the scroll is the destiny of all of us, all of humanity. We'll get to that in coming weeks. But no one is worthy to open it and to read it. And so John is just broken and he's, he's weeping. The original language hints at, at the scene like a small child who's just unconsolable who's just crying, and you can't stop the child. You know what that's like, right? The, the kid, the, their face is just contorted. Their eyes hurt, and the tears are just flooding down. They're letting out these loud wails. And this is a gross kind of crying, where the snot is all coming down the face. You're just oh, like, oh, this is John in desperation, weeping. And the angel says to him, John, John, wait. Look, the lion. And then John turns. He says, I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing. Did you catch it? It's brilliant. John's told, look, the lion of Judah. And he turns and he sees a lamb. He's told, look, the lion, and he sees a lamb. He's told, lion. He hears lion. He sees a lamb. So don't miss this church. He hears lion roar. He turns and he sees a lamb. I mean, it's, it doesn't compute. It doesn't make any sense in his mind at first. Like what's, what's happening here? And he sees immediately that there is this lion who is the lamb. It's one and the same. And so what is happening in this moment? Well, look, at what the lion, who is the lamb, does. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. How awesome is it that God holds on to our prayers? That your prayers fill heaven. How many of your prayers fill that bowl. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the stroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God. And they will reign on the earth. And in this moment, we see this picture of what's happening there, John's fourfold description of what's happening, right? There's this fourfold description of of God's people, every tribe and language, and people and nation. Remember, four represents the totality of the earth. It's it's all the people from all the earth represented right here. That that's what God desires. He has this multicultural picture of his of his kingdom people, and notice that that. The activity in that room, the activity of heaven, is directing attention and praise and honor and worship to God. That the activity of God in that moment is directing his attention here to us. That the lamb who was slaughtered to ransom the lost ones to himself. To bring them home. To bring them in. And so we see this picture of God's heart. As all of creation is worshiping him, God is focused on us. Loving us, slaughtered for us, for all of the sin and the muck and the junk and the dirtiness and the ugliness of our sin to bring us back to him, to make us right with him again. And we see this picture of God's heart that God in that moment desires that people from every tribe and language and nation and people would comprise his kingdom be. In this moment, we see this picture that God's heart is for the nations. And so God tells us to go. He's made us a kingdom of priests for him. He gives us a mission. He sends us forth to help everyone from everywhere find and follow Jesus, to be part of his people. And so that means that to do that, we've got to cross the lines. Social lines and cultural lines and economic lines and language barriers and racial barriers. And I know some of you, as soon as you hear some of those words, they're like a trigger word for us, especially in this era. We hear and say, oh, oh, no, is the preacher going to go political on us? Is he, he going to talk politics? No, 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 no. It's not political. But listen, Revelation predates all of our politics by a long, long shot. It's not political, it's biblical. Church, it's biblical. That God's heart is for all people, everywhere. And so he sends us. Jesus told us, go and make disciples of all nations everywhere, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey everything that I've taught you. Go, the primary driving verb in that is go. And he wants us to go to all people everywhere, to go to the nations. And that means we might have to jump on a plane and go to other places. This means God desires people from Turkey and Poland and Japan and China. He desires people from North and South Korea, Laos, Vietnam. He desires people from India, from the Pacific Islands. He desires people from Australia. He desires people from South Africa, from Egypt from the Congo, from Kenya and Somalia, people from Spain and Portugal, from Chile and Venezuela, from Honduras and Mexico, Guatemala, Canada, and even right here. That that's God's heart. And he desires people who, every different tribe amongst all those nations, every nation you can think of, God wants them part of his heavenly choir. And every Different part of all those, right? Like, we just look at the U.S., like, we got these different sections. We, we talk a little different. God wants the, the West Coast surfer boy accent represented there. God wants the, the Southern Cajun backyou, bayou of Louisiana represented there. God wants the, The New Englanders who leave the R off of everything represented there. God wants the southern draw. God wants the perfect Midwestern accent, because that's the one that's supposed to be. He wants them represented there, right? God wants people from everywhere, all different nations, all different languages, every skin color. God desires that there. And listen, it's not political. It's biblical. That's God's heart for the nations. So while all of creation worships him, he comes to us. How beautiful, how awesome is that? And so it's our job to go, to go. And, and the really cool thing is like we, we might have to go. We, we might have to go to Turkey. But there's also the thing that God's doing in the world right now where those people are also coming to us. And we live in a multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic city where there are different nations and tribes and languages represented right here. So maybe we just got to go across the city. Maybe we just got to go across town. Some of us, we just got to go across the street. That's how it is for me. Just got to walk across the street, and the nations are right there. But church, we got to go. We got to go to them. Because that's God's heart. That's God's mission for us. John continues. Then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels. Now, when we come to numbers in the book of Revelation, in this apocalyptic writing, numbers are symbolic. So Tens of thousands and millions, and it just means a whole lot of, a whole lot. Uh, Really big numbers, right? And all these millions of angels around the throne and the living beings and the elders, and they sang in a mighty, thunderous, heavenly chorus. Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped the lamb. And John is doing his best to paint a picture of the indescribable. He is awestruck, and he's just trying to use the best he can to help us see. And and the purpose of this vision is to reveal the greatness of God. God is revealing his greatness to John. John, revealing his greatness to us. That we might join in and see the majestic awesomeness of God. A holy, other, God, just wow. And, And so we step into that. Listen, I I love this time of year, springtime, except this last week when it snowed because that was stupid, but normally I love this time of year, like the flowers are budding and the trees have blossoms on them, I mean, it's just awesome, and there's there's the smell of just fresh cut grass, especially when somebody else is doing the cutting, And, and things are turning green, and the birds are chirping, and the skies are blue, and the weather gets a little bit warmer, and I just love it. Because my wife and I will take walks. Part of it, I love it because my wife loves it so much. We get so we just walk. We go through parks, we walk through our neighborhood, and walk around. We just look at the trees and the flowers and everything. We're like, oh yes! And there's so much beauty that just comes at us during this. And I'm reminded because of all this beauty that's just erupting forth from the dormant ground, all this beauty that just comes up at us. I'm reminded that that beauty is an imperfect representation of the Creator. That the one who breathes it into existence, the one who paints that canvas for us, is even more beautiful than the most beautiful things we can see and imagine. He's even more splendid than the most spectacular things we can see or imagine. And so it directs us towards him. And I'm reminded in this passage here in Revelation 4 and 5 that God's beauty is only matched by his power. Now when John And his audience, those seven churches and all the other churches, when they would have read about a, a throne and one sitting on a throne and surrounded by other people looking to him and worshiping, their immediate thought would have been turned to the Roman Empire. Because there was one sitting on a throne in Rome, Domitian. And he was nasty and he was evil. And and he looked at himself as God, wanted to be worshipped as God, and and so demanded others worship him. And so he was surrounded by his elders and by his advisors in the Senate and his counselors. And they looked to him as God and they worshipped him. And anyone who did not was on his hit list, was on the top of it. So the top of his enemy list were the Christians who said, we don't worship you, we worship the king. We worship Jesus. And so in light of that, you had this earthly throne And the Christians, because they did not worship him, were being tortured and persecuted, burned alive, fed to animals, impaled on stakes, crucified, you, you name the kind of torture. They got really creative in the Roman Empire. And this is what they would have seen. That when they start thinking of a throne and power and, and people worshiping and how it all comes about in this picture and revelation. That's where the early Christians would have gone because they saw that. They knew that. They feared it. They hated it. They, they didn't know what to do. Some of them were hiding because of it. And God says to John, don't worry because that's not the real one. That's the imposter. That's the imitation. There is a throne. There is a king. There is power. There is worship. But it's not that throne, it's mine. And that's the message God has for his church. The real power, the real throne, the real king is in heaven. And so turn your gaze up to me. That's what God is telling his church. That's what God is telling John. In this way. Turn your gaze upward, look to me. Don't get caught up in the power struggles of this world. Now sometimes, if you're like me, it can become real easy look back down and we see all the worldly power struggles and, and and vying for power and, and and that pulls at us. And somehow, sometimes we get thinking that, man, if we just get the right person in the right seat of power here in the world, that's going to fix things. That's going to make it better. That's going to solve the problems. That's going to help the church. If we just put the right person in the right worldly seat of power, and the problem is that that's not God's You see, what we encounter through Revelation, from this point throughout the remainder of Revelation, is that God, God just doesn't operate that way. That, that, that's not what he does. He says, shift your perspective from this earthly power to my kingdom power. And, and look at how I do it. You, you see, God's kingdom is advancing and overcoming, not through divine might, but through divine sacrificial That's how he wins. We see this picture of the lion who is the lamb. But the lion is not sitting on the throne roaring. The lion is not sitting on the throne flexing his muscles. The lion is not seated on the throne snarling his teeth. The lion has become a lamb. Slaughtered and slain and bloody. That the narrative of this world is that we will win the day, that we will overcome by power and might and force. And God says, that's the wrong narrative. Church, you will win, not by exercising your power, but by laying it down and sacrificing it in love. Even for, especially for those who oppose you. Even unto death. That's a picture of Revelation. It's a picture of Jesus. That that we win the battle over evil, not by flexing our might, but by demonstrating our love. So that's this picture that we have, and that shapes the remainder of the book of Revelation. That that gives us the perspective we need to have on everything in Scripture that's come up to this book. And it gives us the perspective we need to have for how God desires for us to live our lives. Lives. So we just gotta understand it. The narrative of this world is that power and coercion wins. That, That that's how every earthly kingdom, every single earthly kingdom, bar none, every earthly kingdom wins by power and might and coercion and force and oppression and manipulation. That's how it operates. That's what power in this world does. And God says, That's not my plan, that's not how I'm gonna do it. Because there is a kingdom that is greater and grander and better and more beautiful. And it's winning through love. Through love. So, when we see this lion who is the lamb teaching us about God and how God rules, it means we don't come to Revelation all afraid of the power struggles of this world. I, I think sometimes we can approach Revelation wondering, you know, what's going on in the world? And is it going to tell me about that? You know, Who's the Antichrist? What, what's going on in the seat of power over in the Middle East? What, what's going on over in China? Who's in the Oval Office? What does that mean? And God says, no, no, you don't have to worry so much about that. See, the book of Revelation isn't about who the Antichrist is. The book of Revelation is given so that we can see who the Christ is. Church, that's really good news for us. So when we get our eyes on the Christ... We don't have to worry so much about the Antichrist. That The book of Revelation is not to tell us who the Antichrist is. It's to tell us who the Christ is. That's what it's about. That's how it begins. This is the revelation of Jesus, the Christ, so that we can see him in his glory, his majesty, his honor. Because when we see him there, we need not fret and worry about all the power struggles of this world. And it gives us an invitation not to fear but to hope. Because the one who sits on that throne, the lion who is the lamb, wins the day. And if we side with him, we win too. So sometimes I think we focus on the wrong things, become victims of fear. Because it's so easy to turn our focus to all the things going on in this world, these evil, nasty rulers doing things and, and the problems that, that worldly powers do. But even looking at my own kingdom, and, and we begin to hoard and defend and, and friend and build our own little kingdoms made up of our bank accounts and our 401ks and our houses and our cars and our stuff and our relationships and the things we want. And we begin to, to show on others, oh, and because they're defending their kingdom or their kingdom begins to encroach on mine. And then I'm against some other person. And God says, no, 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 stop that. Because the kingdom... The kingdom of glory is coming and that's where your focus needs to be. That's what it's about. So church, turn away from those other earthly, worldly kingdoms. Turn your eyes to heaven and look to Jesus. See him in his glory. See him on the throne. And when you do, when you see Jesus there on his throne, then our response should be the same as the elders and the creatures and all of creation and the angels and John. When we see Jesus on the throne, our response should be worship. Worship. Now, I don't mean by worship that we just sing songs. That's part of it. And I don't mean that it's just what we do in this room once a week when we gather. That's part of it. That's a small part of it. Well, like you read through the scriptures, you'll see that, that singing is a big part of worshiping God. And you're invited into that. But also reading God's word, studying it, meditating on it. That's worship. And we worship In prayer, and we're called to do that because in prayer we declare again our need for God, our dependency upon him. And we worship by serving others with our time, our abilities, our talents, our treasures, our money, our stuff. And we just give that to God. And when we serve, like we'll do with the love, the 502 effort, that's worship. And we worship by gathering together in this space, of course, but beyond this, in our small groups and in our homes. And when we have coffee with somebody, when we sit and we just laugh and rejoice with somebody who's glad or we cry and we grieve with somebody who's sad. And we worship with our stuff, like all of our stuff. Our money and our homes and our cars and whatever. And we just say, God, I want you to have all of it. Not like you get a box of it. You get all of it because it's for your glory and your honor. So I just here it is and I worship you with it. In whatever way it can be useful in your kingdom, have at it, God. And we worship God through listening. Like in this moment, what you're doing, I pray is worship. And when We hear God's word taught and we approach that time not as a critic, not as a skeptic, but to hear. To hear not from the person on this platform, but to hear from the voice of heaven to say, God, how would you have me change? What would you have me do? How would you have me apply this? Not just for information, but to be transformed into his likeness. And I just want to give you a secret. All of us, every single one of us will struggle with that. Because every single one of us, there's just a natural human propensity to move towards critic instead of worshiper. And and listen, you'll never find a bigger critic of a sermon than another preacher, except for the the person preaching it himself. I'm just going to tell you that. Nobody's going to critique today's message more than me. Which is how it works. So when we come to church, if we leave the church time together thinking, I don't know about the coffee. It's kind of burnt. I don't know the communion cups they use. Man, I'm just not down with that. The songs they sang, oh, those aren't was, that was the songs I'd sing. The way the preacher dressed, did, did he have his white shoes on again this week? Which version of the scripture? Was he? Did, did Mark use the message translation? I mean, come on. Is that even a legit translation? Like, when we start critiquing, you know, oh, I don't know about what the preacher said. I don't know. When we do that, we have moved away from Christianity into consumerism. Like, that makes us God. And that's not what we're invited to. When we do that, when we become a critic instead of a participant, we've moved away from worship. But God is inviting us in this moment, every time to come, and just participate and recognize that we're not singing the songs to ourselves. We're not doing these things for ourselves. We're doing it for him. And if God gets glory, and if it draws other people to him, if it helps somebody else find him, and if it helps somebody follow him, then we can celebrate, we can worship, we can can rejoice in that. That that's what it's about. It's him, not us. And so we have to come as participants. And listen, I tell you this, as a fellow traveler on this journey, i got to remember that as much as anybody else. But God is inviting us to participate in this incredible act of worship all the time. And not just here in Sundays, but every time, everywhere we go. See, worship is this whole life activity that 24-7, everywhere we go, everything we do, wherever we are, our lives should be directing worship to God. So we tell somebody else about Jesus, it's worship. And we sit with somebody else, it's worship. And when we sing a song in our car in our living room, that's worship. When we sing it in the shower and we're praising God there, and that's worship. And when we are taking communion here or wherever you are online with us today, that's worship. All those things are worship. And that's what God invites us to, is to turn our eyes off the things of this world. Because when we do that, we see the world as it should be. But listen, if you look around and you feel overwhelmed because of all the evil and all the junk and all the nastiness of this world, I get it. I get it. Because here's the deal. Sometimes we see all the stuff in this world and the evil and it just, it's hard to worship. But here's what I've learned, is that when I feel like worshiping least is actually when I need to do it the most. When I feel it the least is when I need it the most. And when I gaze. Upon the throne of heaven, and when I gaze upward to Jesus, it, it doesn't mean it erases all the bad stuff in this world. Not like, poof, vanished, there it goes. Oh, life is good. Rainbows and Sesame Street. Here we go. Now, no, it's still there. And we're still burdened and bothered by it. Like I see the things ISIS does and I'm sickened in my stomach. I see poverty and and I grieve over it and and I see the hatred that people have for each other and I just, I don't know what to do about it but I know it's not right and, and I see the nasty evils of this world and it breaks me and it sickens me and it pains me and it burdens me but then I direct my gaze towards Jesus and I'm reminded that the things of this world, that the kingdoms of this world, that the reality that stares me in the face is not the full picture, that there's a reality that's grand and greater and bigger and that his kingdom is coming and his kingdom is right here amongst us and we are his kingdom church and I'm reminded of that and I find this resurgence of hope and I find this, this compulsion to be on mission for him because his kingdom is right here and when I gaze towards him and I see the lion who is the lamb sitting on the throne then I'm compelled to live on mission And I'm reminded that there's a better day coming and that we get to be part of it. And that's our forever day ahead of us. And when I see the lion who is the lamb, it motivates me to live as a lion who would choose to become a lamb and be sacrificed for others for their love. All for the glory of God. Because church, that's how we win. So in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to pray. And right after we pray, we're gonna sing. And I wanna invite you again this week as I did on week one of this series. In keeping with the symbolism of revelation to lift your hands. That if you're here today and you have never worshiped Jesus, you've never surrendered to him, you've never acknowledged that the lion who is a lamb loves you and he gave his life for you, that he's slaughtered for your behalf so that you could be in heaven with him, that you could enter into that throne, that you could be there. And that he has ransomed you from your sin. And if you've never known that, and you've been stuck in the kingdoms of this world and the fear and the uncertainty they bring, he wants to free you from that. So you lift your hands today and and surrender to him. Acknowledge him that you need his love, that you need him to be your savior, that you will follow him as leader. And if you've already done that, then you stand and you lift your hands in victory because the victory is his and we claim victory in him. So if you follow him, you get to hold on to the victory that's in Jesus. So church, let's stand and let's pray. And then let's give it all in worship to him. Jesus, we thank you that you are king and you are savior and redeemer. We thank you that you are worthy to hold the scroll, to open it, to read it, and to declare what it says. God, for any who don't know you, I pray that today would be the turning point day for them. That any who who have never worshipped you before would worship you in this moment and declare right now in this moment that they need you, that they turn to you, they surrender to you. And God, for those of us who are your people, I pray that we would worship you, all the time, everywhere we go, with everything we do and everything we have and everything we say and everything we think. And God, when we when we get our eyes off of you, Holy Spirit, remind us to just turn our eyes back to to see you on the throne. God, thank you for the hope we have of that. Thank you for the confidence. Thank you for the assurance that you, the lion who is the lamb, you win and you reign. And you are fearsome, but you are for us. And so hear our praise, hear our prayers now as we sing to you.